With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I happened to have gone to a dinner party I wasn't going to go to because I was about to start a Broadway show. I was working on The Sopranos. I didn't have time. I went for a quick drink, thinking to leave, and I met my husband. We haven't been apart since that party. Welcome to the latest episode of Just Getting Started. As you know, I started this podcast uh, a few months ago in the middle of the height of the pandemic to try and give everybody an idea of maybe starting on your your life plan or restarting your life plan to do whatever you need to do to maybe figure things out that you don't think you have the ability to figure things out through the origin stories of my guests. And I couldn't be more pleased to have on this episode of Just Getting Started an Emmy Award winner, a Screen Actors Guild Award winner, a Golden Globe Award winner many times over, but for the first time an author. Hold her book up right here. It's called Sunshine Girl, An Unexpected Life. Juliana Margulies right here on Just Getting Started. How are you doing, Juliana? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on here. I'm thrilled to be chatting with you. I wrote a book back in 2007. No matter what I've done since then, anybody said, hey, I've read your book. It means so much. It's so personal. Why did you decide to uh, write a book and write this memoir, Sunshine Girl? It is amazing now that it's out in the world to be hearing the responses from it. It's just a really fascinating journey. I decided to write the book after I finished seven years on The Good Wife. I had gotten incredibly ill my last day of shooting right when I got home. And that sort of quashed all the plans I had. I wanted to be really uh, dive into the world of what would it be like not to have to wake up at six in the morning and go to work and learn 14 pages of dialogue and work nonstop. And I was really excited about sort of a, a calm life ahead of me. And instead I got the chicken pox and I was held up in bed for three weeks. And in a way, I look at it now and see what an incredible gift it was because it gave me the time to start writing things down. To I had to shed Alicia's skin. Mm-hmm. When you are in someone else's shoes for seven years, always thinking like them and wondering how they would react to something over how you would react to something, it made me realize that I hadn't quite examined my own life enough. And... Alicia Florick, the character I played on The Good Wife, had such a hold on me because it was also at a time in my life, it started so soon after I'd had my kid and gotten married and started this new life that I was so happy to welcome into my journey forward. And then all of a sudden it was just plate spinning. You know, there was no time for anything. And I thought, wow, this is a time to sort of dig down deep, let go of Alicia and figure out what it is I want to do and how I want to comport the next phase of my life. And in doing so, I realized that I hadn't examined my own life enough. And so I started to unpeel the layers. And as you know, you know, once you, you start writing a book and I mean, it's had so many iterations, right? 
I had written nine chapters when I was sick. And, and then of course the scabs went away and the chicken pox <laughs> went away and I got better. I had submitted the nine chapters to my agent and she said, you had a fascinating childhood. I think you have a book here. But of course, the second I got better, acting jobs started coming in. So it was one of those painful processes where I would be so ready to write. And then I'd realize that, you know, I was doing a, a miniseries called The Hot Zone, where I was having to learn scientific dialogue. And then I thought, oh, what did I get myself into? I can't learn these lines and write a book. And so I finally figured out a balance between it all. But in doing so, it took me four years. And in those four years, the book went through many iterations and ultimately, I stripped everything down and ended up with this sort of very raw, truthful, honest um, view of my life and, and how I got to where the subtitle of the book, which is An Unexpected Life, is really the truth in I never, ever expected my life to be this wonderful. Um, so, so that sort of was the journey in. And um, the peeling of the layers back to discover who I was as a child, who I was while I was working, while I was in relationships, and where I got to now. So I guess it's a good thing you didn't get chicken pox as a kid. <laughs> exactly. I actually thought I was immune. My, you know, when we were little, Rich, I think we're around the same age, but yeah, my kid, my kid, and your kids all have chicken pox vaccines. You're right. When I would, when we were kids, our, our moms would put us in rooms, you know, with other other kids who had chicken pox. It actually, sounds a little medieval now, doesn't it? It's it's sick. I never got them, so I thought I was immune to chicken pox. So I guess I should ask you: Were you able to finish your book because you got mononucleosis, or like, I mean, like? Yeah, it was the only way I was going to slow down and stop. You know, it really was the gift of time, and I think we've all learned this through the pandemic, right? the gift of time to just slow down and take a breath and really examine how you want your life to be. I think, I hope many people have learned through this pandemic and the lockdown to value our time and to not get caught up in that, that whirlwind of what we call life, but is it truly living your truest life? No, I, I feel that because you know my wife as well, and we've been talking about it that now that we seem to be, thank goodness, on the back end of this pandemic, did we do enough with our time down? Now that we are getting back into the normal, did we do enough of what you've just talked about, the evaluation of yeah. yourself? And we're wondering if we actually did enough to do that, what you're talking about. For me, some days, my husband and I would say at the end of the day, my God, it's Groundhog Day. Yeah. You know, because tomorrow's going to start up and the, and we don't see our friends and we don't see our family. We only see the three of us and we're, you know, and for me, I was finishing a book and, and also voicing a, a documentary for PBS about these unsung women heroes. And so my day just started and get the kid online for school and run and do the grocery shopping and make sure there's lunch, you know, all the things and then write two chapters and edit and, and do the mm. laundry and clean the house. And it just became sort of this day of chores. And then on the weekends, we would try and just not do anything and play games. And I taught my kid how to play poker. And, you know, I tried <laughs> to make it fun for him because he's an only child. And I felt terrible that he was stuck with two parents, you know, <laughs> right? helicoptering around him, um, watching his every move. And I wanted there to be some sort of joy. But one of the things we did that really 
I'm really grateful for. My husband's always been someone who meditates and I never have. I was a yogi. I did a lot of yoga, but you know, I had gotten so injured from it that I had stopped doing yoga. And my thing was going out for these six mile runs every day. And that was sort of my meditation. But then we all decided to start meditating together. And our New Year's resolution, we don't make them for ourselves. We make them for each other. What would you like that person to, to be able to, because I always feel like when you make a New Year's resolution and break it, then you just feel worse, you know, right. a month later. So we sat around the table and said, what is your wish for that person? Mm-hmm. And all three of us had the exact same wish for each other, which was to keep meditation as a part of our daily lives, even when we get back into the crazy. I feel like I failed miserably, but I do do it as often as I can. So let's get into your origin story. How did you get started? How did you get started on your career and... And my life. Well, so I had a very chaotic childhood of divorced parents, which isn't so odd being a child of the 70s, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. most uh, marriages ended in divorce at that point. But I am the daughter of two uh, soul seekers. And in my childhood, both my parents, a little bit before I was born, I was sort of a happy accident, I suppose one could say. I don't know if they would have said it at the time, but their marriage was pretty much over when they found out I was, my mother was pregnant with me and they divorced when I was about one. Mm. And my father moved to Paris to, um, he was in advertising, a copywriter, and he was asked to take this job in Paris. So we moved about a year later. So there was a lot of moving around. It was Paris for two years, London for three years. Then we all moved back to New York where we lived in the suburbs. My dad lived in New York city. And then my mother decided to move me and my sister. My, I'm the youngest of three girls. My eldest sister was studying ballet at the School of American Ballet. She decided she couldn't live with my mother anymore at the age of 12. My mother is sort of the central character in my book. Mm-hmm. She's incredibly eccentric and narcissistic, but in a strange... When I say that, it sounds really awful, but... The truth is my mom is one of the most fantastic people I've ever met. She's incredibly complex, incredibly difficult, but magnificent at the same time. And the job I found the hardest to write about in the book was to balance out the love that she gave her children because there was true, beautiful love there. And the crazy that she made us go through because her needs came first. So it was sort of this up and down life I had. And my mother, who had a string of boyfriends, it was like a revolving door. So, you know, when when you're a child and you get attached to one and then the next one leaves and then Hmm. you get attached to the next (laughs) or you don't get attached at all because you know how it's going to end. I was always taking in the temperature of the room. What mood was my mother in? And that's the moniker. The reason the book is called Sunshine Girl is because that was my mother's nickname for me as a child. As beautiful as that sounds, and I know it does, and I did wear it as a badge of honor for many, many years, I I felt beholden to anyone sitting in the room to make them feel happy. So I didn't complain and I didn't, um, I, I hid my true feelings often because I wanted to be the one that was easy. 
since my mother was so difficult and my middle sister was moody and my eldest sister was doing ballet far away from us living with my father. And it just was a lot of uncertainty. And I knew that with a smile and a, a sunshiny disposition, I could actually change the mood in the room. The problem with that is as I got older, that name and that title was embedded in my psyche. And so then when I went out into the world, I had a hard time drawing boundaries. I had a hard time saying, no, this doesn't feel right. I don't like this. I, I like this. I, I just was a people pleaser. I just wanted everyone to be happy regardless of how I felt. And I brought that into my own romantic relationships, which is never, never a, a very good recipe for a successful relationship if you're never saying how you really feel. So because I was moving from different countries and we went back to England and was pulled away from my father, then I came back to America, but we ended up in New Hampshire, which was like being in a foreign country in and of itself for a girl who came straight from London. I guess I was always putting on someone else's shoes, trying out someone else's accent, taking, you know, looking around the classroom to see how those kids dressed. And I was always playing a character. I was never playing myself. So I really, as I was writing the book, and I write about this in one of the chapters, what else could I have done but act? That was, I had the perfect backdrop in my childhood to become an actor because it wasn't until I got to college and I never thought about being an actor. I, I actually thought I was going to be a, a lawyer or something with gravitas. My, my grandmother was one of the first women to graduate from NYU Law School in 1924 and I always wanted to follow in her footsteps. I thought that that was a noble profession. And when I got to college my freshman year, I was cast in a play. And that opening night of this David Ray play called In the Boom Boom Room, just it's it was one of those lightning bolt moments. The curtain comes up, the lights, the audience. And I had this outer body experience, which was this is where I'm meant to be. I'm finally home. Because I hadn't really had a home home in a, for most of my life, to be honest with you. And I felt so at home on the stage. And also I was able to express myself through these characters. So I could be angry and ugly and mean and throughout, through, through other people's writing, right? So I didn't have to take responsibility as Juliana. I could play a mean, crazy drunk and get my yayas out. <laughs> uh, on stage and it became sort of my safe place and so that's how I realized I was gonna act. Did it come easy to you or did you have a moment where you had a fight for something or you were like how did you how did you climb well the I, I, success? I got lucky really early I mean I, I think oh god I had a five-year plan <laughs> right my five-year plan was if I wasn't making a living acting, if I couldn't pay my rent, put food on the table and have health insurance by the time I was 25, mm -hmm. I would go back to school. I'd be young enough that I could still go back to graduate school and be a lawyer or a psychologist or whatever it was. So I always felt very confident when I went into these auditions because I had a backup plan. <laughs> If it didn't sure. work out, you know? Yeah. Um, and I also thought if I haven't made it by then, maybe that's just the world telling me I'm not good enough. And I got an agent right out of college. And six months after waitressing, I got my first movie. 
and I got a SAG card. And it's so funny that the the naivete that goes along with your first job as an actor when you get that SAG card and you know you get a paycheck for acting, not that it was much, but you think I'm never going to have to waitress or bartend or check coats again. Like this will never happen again. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, you know, six months later, I was behind the bar <laughs> pouring gin and tonics, but I was on my way because I had a SAG card. Casting directors started to know me. And I had a movie under my belt. And so for me, really, I got lucky. I would say pretty much, you know, a year out of college, I was making my living acting, doing regional theater, making $230 a, a week. But I was pay. I, I had my equity card. I got my equity card from Yale Rep when that was the first um, equity play I did. So I had health insurance and, and I could pay my rent and it was meager, but that's how I started. And what helped me a lot too was, commercials. I did, I think, three national commercials that kept me afloat. And every time I kept thinking I'd have to go back to bartending or waiting on tables, I would get a residual check that would cover that month, you know? What were were the commercials? Oh my God. Well, my first big commercial where it's such a funny story because I was furious at my agents because they sent me in on this Ethan Allen furniture commercial. I remember that, sure. And it was me and... 25 seven foot tall blonde nor, nor nordic looking models sitting in the the waiting room and i was furious because i was embarrassed i'm five seven i'm dark i'm jewish yeah. like what was i doing in this waiting room and um i call i remember remember phone but there was no there was no cell phone back then i called yeah. my commercial agent from the street from the phone booth and i was like don't do that to me it's mortifying i'm not a model I'm not seven feet tall and it's just mortifying. And they said, well, you got it. And I said, I got, I got the job. <laughs> how did I get the job? They said you were the only one who looked real. and you didn't have <laughs> So, Hey, it's kind of that works. Here that you go. commercial ran for a year nationally and I made more money off that. I could not believe how much money I was making. And I never had to speak. I just had to move me and the guy playing my husband. We had a little dog. Like we just had to move furniture around. I didn't even say a line. (laughs) And then the next commercial I got was McDonald's commercial. And actually Paris Barkley cast me in that. Famous Um, director. Big director. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he's head of the director's guild at this point, but a wonderful guy. And he directed ER and he directed the good wife. So, so he and I go way back to, to McDonald's. They wanted a black person a very, very white person, and then an in-between person. And no one in those days seemed to think that I was white. I was always like, is she Latino? Is she part black? What, what is she? But because I guess of the curly hair and I don't know, I got cast in the middle of these two people and we had to eat hot wings and hot wings. Quite funny because we all got these broke out these <laughs> terrible bumps all over our mouths. And then they said, actually don't, Try not to let it touch your lips because there's so much chemical, we have chemicals on them to make them look good. And we had spit buckets. I mean, it's a very, very glamorous job that I have, but that was a national commercial. And then I did another McDonald's for some reason, McDonald's liked me and I don't even eat. I, I, at that time I was completely vegetarian. So yeah, McDonald's and Ethan Allen saved me. How about that? (laughs) So how did you get ER? 
how'd you wind up on ER? So ER came, I was out in LA. I had got flown out there to visit a boyfriend who I thought I'd get to live with. That didn't work out so well. I was in LA living in a rented room I found to rent in Laurel Canyon. And I had a good agent at that point, a pretty good agent, but I wasn't having a very good time out there. In New York, casting directors knew me. I was sort of the regional theater girl. I had mm. done a couple little independent things and I had done Homicide Life on the Street the year before, which was a great Tom Fontana, Barry Levinson, actually Ned Beatty. My All my scenes were with Ned Beatty. I played a, a violinist and he played the cello. Anyway, so I was known in New York. I mean, known when I say that by casting directors. who sure. were In LA, the casting directors didn't seem that thrilled to get to know me. And I just felt like I was having a hard time breaking in. And I decided to move back to New York. I was like, you know, I, it, I need a season to move forward. My family was back here. So I went, I needed to make some money to get the plane fare home. And I went on an audition for this show called the ER. Get and uh, <laughs> I, I had two other auditions. It was pilot season. I don't know if pilot season exists anymore with streaming and whatnot, but January and February is pilot season. And that's when you go out on all your auditions for television shows that are coming. And so I went and I, and I had two auditions after the ER audition. And it was to be, um, it was to play a series, not a series regular, but could become a series regular. She would be a recurring and it would mm -hmm. be the love interest for the Doug Ross character who at the time, no one knew, you know, George Clooney. I mean, right. few people might have, but he wasn't George Clooney then the George Clooney we know today. Anyway, um, I went in and the, the place was packed with actors and the wait was going on and on. And I was going to miss my other two auditions because it went on for two hours. And I had that New York terrible attitude. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm out of here. Uh, two hours. Like I understand 30 minutes, 40 minutes, but two hours is ridiculous. And so I got up to leave just as the casting director, John Levy was coming out and he said, called my name. So when I went into audition for this part that was supposed to be a doctor who was a bit flirty um, and I read the whole scene, just pissed off, terse and uninterested in being there. And I, and I literally, I just, and there's Mike, Michael Crichton was sitting there, Steven Spielberg, John Wells, the director, Rod Holcomb. And I got up and left and, and, John Levy came running after me and he goes, so you're not right for that part. And I went, you think? Because <laughs> I was just, I was just done. And he goes, but you're really right for this nurse. Her name is Carol Hathaway and she dies in the pilot. Would you read for her? And he hands me sides, which for your listeners, if they don't know, just means the dialogue. Right. Um, and I was so, oh my God, I was such a New York theater snob. I said, you know, I actually prepare for auditions. I don't do cold readings. Oh, shit. <laughs> and John, he, he just chuckled and he said, okay, so go prepare. And he brought me into a, you know, let me, I think I was sitting in a stairwell of a fire exit. And I said, Ugh. and he goes, just knock when you're ready. And so I read these lines for Hathaway and I knocked and I went in 
And I was just furious and I didn't care. I didn't want to ever see these people again. I thought, okay, I get it, Spielberg, and I and I should have impressed him. And I know I Yeah, didn't. I was about to say, one of them, Steven Spielberg, Juliana. I, know. I mean, I know. like, I just was. I so know they made you wait, but holy, I mean, wow, what I know. a story. I think I, I think I was embarrassed and I don't know. My pride had been wounded, you know? Sure. Anyway, I went home and um, my agent called and she goes, You got the part. And I didn't know, I said, which part? Because I had had two other right. auditions. And she said, ER. And I said, what? The nurse? And she said, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, okay, great. And I, I thought, well, she dies, right? She dies in the pilot. And she goes, well, she does die in the pilot, but they really want you to do the part. They think you're perfect for it. And I said, well, okay, how much is it going to pay? Because I just wanted enough money to get back to New York. I thought, I'll go do this pilot and then mm -hmm. I can fly home. And I'll never forget because I'd never heard this. She said, well, they're going to pay you $20,000. I know it's not much. <laughs> I dropped the phone. I started jumping up and down. Suddenly I loved LA. Yeah. I loved everything about <laughs> the process I had just been through. I was like, wait, what? And I went and did the pilot and had for three weeks, we shot that pilot. And I think in a two hour pilot, maybe, maybe they shot for a month in a two hour pilot. I have seven minutes of screen time. But what happened was the way they shot my death, my character OD in the pilot and comes in on a gurney OD. And that was really the beginning of Steadicam stuff. Like I always said uh -huh. that the Steadicam on ER was really a seventh character on that show. Um, but the way that Rod Holcomb shot it, he shot my sort of overdose through George Clooney's eyes and through the eyes of Sherry and Noah and Anthony Edwards and Eric, because they were all around that gurney when I come in and you just see they're, they're stricken, but you really see George Clooney's character, Doug Ross is just because they had had a history and she, so apparently the, I'm back in New York. I'm about to take another job. And George Clooney called me and said, I don't know a lot, but I get the feeling they want to keep you alive. Don't take another job. Get out of here. He no, called you. He called you. He's the one who called you and said, he called, Do he called me. I don't know. You know, he and I have never discussed why he was so kind <laughs> to throw me that incredible bone that changed my career. I think the girl who had played his love interest, the, the part I had messed up, <laughs> He didn't get along with her. Um, it wasn't a happy coupling on the mm -hmm. pilot. I, is my I, that was the feeling I was getting, mm -hmm. and I think you know, like the other, like the other five main characters of that show, I threw lines away that some people might have made a meal out of because that was what that show was. You didn't make a, a meal out of these lines. You said your lines and you moved on because there was another you know critically injured person in the next room. So you never made meals out of anything. Anyway, I turned the other job down and waited. And a week later they called and flew me out to LA and, and I became a serious regular. The rest is history. The rest is history. It's amazing. I do want to, in our remaining time, want to hit on a couple other aspects of your career, but it just strikes me that you never know, right? You never know. Or did it help that you were pissed that they made you wait and that you 
And right. you know, you know what I mean? Like that you didn't care so much that you needed it, even though you needed the money to get back East. That Exactly. It's interesting because you know? the original title of my book, was called a left instead of a right. You never know. Because that's something my grandfather always used to say to me when I was little. That's how he met my grandmother. He happened to pick up his sister at law school that day. My grandmother and my great aunt Marley were both at NYU and out came my grandmother. And it was like, he was in love. And so I always used to say, you know, you never know if you make a left instead of a right, your whole day can change or a right instead of a left, whatever. And, and so I liked that idea because with ER, if I hadn't been angry, and if I hadn't done that audition with a terse, snide attitude, I don't think I would have gotten her. And who knows how that day was going for the casting director and for, you know, maybe mm-hmm. someone, maybe John Wells was late getting to the, you don't know why the casting session started late or why, you know, we were all waiting or why my time slot was my time slot. So it's like just a confluence of events that leads you to the life you lead. I mm-hmm. love that idea. And I love, I loved it, which is when I get to the end of my book, I talk about, I happened to have gone to a dinner party I wasn't going to go to because I was about to start a Broadway show. I was working on The Sopranos. I didn't have time. And I, I went for a quick drink thinking to leave. And I met my husband. Uh, we haven't been apart since that party. No kidding. And I I just think like things like that make me so, I get so... I get a little verklempt because you think a million times I said to myself, I can't, I have lines to learn for this play. I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm shooting the Sopranos the next day. And, and I have a rehearsal, like there's no way. And the friend who invited me to the party talked, talked me into just come for one drink and then leave. And of course I, I stayed, I think I was the last person there with my now husband and um, I went very hungover, by the way, to the rehearsal the next day. But we literally haven't been apart since. And the amount of times, and I talk about this in the book, it's like, we never would have met. My husband at the time was a lawyer. Our, our circles never would have intermingled. It just wouldn't have happened. So what if I had said no? Where would my life be then? Because now I, I, I'm leading a life I've always dreamed about mm. with a partner who's, inc- he's my rock. He's solid and we have this kid and we have this life. And I just, from such chaos to what I have now, I just think, how can that just be because and not with some sort of deeper meaning, you know? I love it. I do love it about sliding doors, road not taken, or or roads that you do take because you do say yes, or 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 uh, I, I I love that. I mean, you you mentioned the Sopranos, Juliana. That's one of the touchstones I wanted to hit with you here because you know obviously we just we just established ER and how you got into it and what that did become, and you know the Good Wife is something that you helped create, right? I mean, you know, and 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 you'd already already established that you needed some time to get out of your character's skin after being in that skin for a long time. But the Sopranos was, I mean, you want to talk about when you joined it. I mean, the the Sopranos was already as iconic a television show as you could possibly get. And and what was that like for you to step on that set? You know, those are one of those phone calls when they said, David Chase has written this part and he wants you to do it. And then you get the sides. No one ever read a whole script, at least not guest stars. You know, when, um, I never, I actually never saw an entire script. I only ever saw my sides 
Mm -hmm. um, things were in lock lockdown on that show. Sure. Um, and then to read this character named Juliana. Yes. And spelled with two N's the way I spell mine. Um, it, it was, I was, it was such an incredible moment. I was like, wow. I, first of all, I knew Michael Imperioli. I knew James Gandolfini because we all started out in New York doing, you know, student films in basements for NYU directors, you know? So over the years and in theater and plays and Michael Imperioli had done a play with an ex-boyfriend of mine. So every day, you know, I went out afterwards every night with those guys and I knew Edie for years. She and I played, um, Hasidic Jews in a, in a Boaz Yakin film called the price of Above rubies. So I knew these people. And funnily enough, Matt Weiner, who wrote on the show had mm -hmm. just done the pilot of Mad Men. And he was a little bit obsessed with the fact that Paul Margulies is my father because my father wrote Plop Plop Fizz Fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. He wrote the city never sleeps city bank. He wrote, I mean, my, he was a very, He's a madman. Yeah. Madman. Yeah, sure. The, my dad was the exact opposite of madman, <laughs> though. My father, yes. um, my father was a vegetarian who didn't drink or smoke and only wanted to just read his philosophy books. So yeah. that doesn't sound like Don Draper or, until I guess maybe the end when he was doing yoga or something. I don't know. Well, you I know, know but... I said to my dad, because he would have to sit through those three martini lunches, sipping his chamomile tea and eating his, you know, vegetable plate. While they're all smoking and, you know, it was, it was hell for him. And, and Matt Wiener actually gave me on the set of The Sopranos the pilot that no one had seen of Mad Men and said, would you show this to your father, please? And let me know what he thinks. And my dad at the time was in the Berkshires and I drove up one weekend and I said, dad, we have to watch this. That one of the writers, he's an incredible writer on The Sopranos, wants you to see it. And my father looked at me and he said, Juliana. I spent my whole life trying to get out of those rooms. The last thing I want to do is sit and watch them. <laughs> so he never saw one episode of Mad Men, which, um, I, well, now Matt will know. I've never told that story. He'll oh, great. I think I was like, no, my dad loved it. I, I don't remember, but being on that show, you know, even, even the, I think I did barely six episodes of the last mm -hmm. season of their, their, sixth season, but it was, it was heaven for me. I mean, there's also something to be said for all these actors who were such New York thespians mm -hmm. and, and real uh, gritty, you know, there was no, there was no diva attitude on that show. And James Gandolfini always treated everyone with such respect and kindness. And Michael, well, I just had a ball. I loved it. I wished I had had a scene with Edie. I never had a scene with her. Do you think I'll ask you? Do you do you think um, Tony dies in that diner, Juliana? What do you think? Uh, I'm asking you a straight up television history question. As somebody who has spent time on that set, what do you think? Do you think he dies in that diner? I what personally, at the time when I watched when I watched it, I didn't. But maybe that's because I was in denial and I was so sad the show was ending. And I think a lot of us feel that way. Yes. You know? Yes. Because you want it to continue. But then when I hear that David Chase has written a prequel, right? He wrote a film that, that Jimmy's son is, is coming out. Young mm -hmm. um, Tony. And then I think, oh, yeah, maybe he died. You know why? You know, because there's nowhere else to go with it. Yeah. I think so, too. 
And and I just I remember by the way the the anniversary of the final episode just passed last week actually, and that was a time where um, because the I guess wasn't even a fade to black just the black silence lasting so long uh, everybody looked at me because we were watching it in my house they thought I forgot to pay the bill for Directv and were staring <laughs> at me like what the hell like it just went out but I, I oh my personally. God, that's a nightmare. Oh yeah, I'm like, don't blame, don't look at me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the hell's going on either. But you know, in retrospect, I think that long silence definitely means that he was in the gateway. I think to the yeah. next life. Personally, I really feel that way. It was yeah. a big loss, I think, for all of us when when he when James died. That funeral, I went to that funeral, and I have to say, ah, oh, that was a really tragic time. We lost a great one with him. He was a magnet. You know, there was something about him. Everyone. He was like a, a moth to the flame. We just all, we, we ran to him. There was something about him that you just wanted to be in his orbit. Um, and he also sometimes could be a little scary, but in a good way, you know, it's sort of like larger than life. But I felt really uh, blessed that I got to work with him and, and be on that show. It's such an iconic show. And then, you know, your your own iconic show as well with uh, The Good Wife. Um, and I'll, I'll just give you the floor on what, what you were most proud of about that that show, Juliana, and I guess why how that might inform us about what you said earlier on that you needed some time to kind of unwind from being that character for as long as you were. Yeah, on that show, I, I was really drawn from the moment I read the pilot. I don't know if in LA you guys were as glued to the television as New Yorkers were when Elliot Spitzer mm. had a press conference and his wife um, was standing behind him at that press conference. I was screaming at the television, begging for her to get off that stage. He didn't deserve to have her standing behind him. And I, I was really taken by it. And then when I read the pilot, I thought, oh my God, this is, I, I need to play her because I need to know what happens after what happens in the green room. That's why the Kings wrote the good wife. When they saw that press conference, they wanted to know what was said in the green room. Like, what do you say after that? You know? Right. And so this character for me, I, I, I'm most proud. I have to say, I mean, I can't say, I, you know, the Kings wrote it. I, I was just their conduit to uh, be able to reach an audience and let, their lines be said through me, but what I'm most proud of is at the time there were no female lead characters on network television like that. So this was 2009 and dealing with what elite, what Alicia deals with a philandering cheating husband. And you find out that you have put your career. Uh, my character graduated top in her class at Georgetown law higher than the Josh Charles character, higher than her husband. And she put her career on the back burner. Well, not even the back burner. She quit mm -hmm. to raise her kids. And what happened? He ends up just a disgrace. And she is literally swimming to shore to try and save her life. You know, doggy paddle style. She was drowning and had to go back to law at the age of 42. No one wants to hire a 42 year old woman and still take care of her two children, 
protect them from the horrible press that's happening about their father and somehow maintain her sanity. I cannot tell you how many women that role resonated with. It didn't necessarily have to be a philandering husband, but the whole idea that who are we when we go to college as women and then we decide on a career and then because we are caretakers and have children and stop our lives. And when I say our lives, I mean our careers to have these children, which if you want to just have the children and and that's your career, that's great. But when you have tried to fulfill a dream and go to graduate school, and then that dream, you're the one in the marriage that has to sit back. The amount of women who saw Alicia as a way for them to move forward with their own careers and still be a mom. We could, we can do it, but women know how to juggle. It's not easy. There's no such thing as work-life balance. I'm sure Susie will tell you that mm-hmm. it's possible. You know, it's just like, it's really oh, yeah. hard, but I also do believe that if, if I, you know, for me personally, if I don't have my work, I'm not a good parent. If I don't, I need to feel fulfilled intellectually for myself in order to be the best parent I can be. And I think so many women feel that way. And so what I loved most about the show was how it resonated. You know, it was called The Good Wife. So we didn't get a lot of male viewers at first because of the name of the show. And apparently they tried to find a million other titles and it went back to The Good Wife. And then about three seasons in, I started getting stopped on the street by men Mm -hmm. who would say, my, my wife's so obsessed with your show and I didn't want to watch it because I thought it was all girly and it's called The Good Wife. And so then I started watching it. It's such a good show. Yeah. And so then, I, then it, you know, it, it, it resonated <laughs> with men too. And young people who would come up all the time, I still get letters from them saying, I became a lawyer because of your character. So I think what I'm most proud of is, is that the show really resonated with human beings who, who want to fulfill a dream for themselves, who want to get out of this idea of this is a, women can only do one thing. Um, and, and it gave people confidence to go and, and, and follow their dream, which I think so often we, we sort of stop ourselves because we think we, well, you can't do both. Anyway, so I, I guess that's a long-winded answer. I'm sorry, but um, no, I, not at I all. Her. I miss that character a lot. <laughs> well, I, you know, and I guess to to wrap this conversation up, um, what would you tell your younger self that maybe can inform people who are watching this pod or listening to it right now, Juliana, to to get started on on something that they put aside or they've decided that there's no odds of being successful what 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 would you tell somebody that is going to read your book hasn't yet read your book what have you uh that your journey can inform them in a way yeah so in in, in my book and I, I i dedicate almost a whole chapter to it i t- i discuss the reason why i turned down 27 million dollars to stay on er for an extra two years that wasn't the part that was so interesting to me what was interesting to me was the journey and how i got there and the advice I got from my father and listening to my own heart. And I would tell you, and I spoke about it at uh, the 2010, I, I was the commencement speaker at my alma mater, Sarah Lawrence College. And I, I said to the students, money is a great thing. I love making money. 
it's a privilege to be able to not worry about your rent or the food on your table. But if you do not listen to your own heart, not all the voices telling you what to do, if you do not stay true to yourself, you're never going to leave this planet with money in your pockets. That doesn't go with you. Your soul and your heart is what matters. And I think everyone, especially today, I feel bad for young people because everyone has an opinion, right? On social media, it seems like everyone's a judge and everyone can comment on you. I would say, don't listen to others, especially people who have nothing to do with your life. Uh, listen to your heart and go to the person you respect and admire the most for your advice. Don't go with the, the herd. Be your own person and be true to yourself because and I, and I write about this in one of the chapters. My father had said to me, you know, I know a lot of rich, unhappy people. And what if you go and do this for two years, but you get hit by a bus before the two years is over? And as your soul is leaving your body, you look down at yourself and you say, what do you say to yourself? You weren't living your best life. You weren't living your happiest life. You were waiting, biding time to get rich. There's no time like the present. And I think if anything we've learned through this pandemic is my God, you have to listen to your heart and you, ha and you have to respect your own thoughts before you do someone else's. Um, so that, that's what I would say. Other people may disagree with me, but it's, it has always steered me correctly. And, and I think the most important thing in life is not to have regrets. So try and live your life that way without thinking, oh, I'm going to regret this. Try not to have that. Beautiful. And the book Sunshine Girl and Unexpected Life by Juliana Margulies can be gotten where all books are acquired. Of all the things that you said that makes me want to hit a follow-up question, including the fact that your, your dad came up with Plop Plop Fizz Fizz for Alka-Seltzer, the, the, the one I do want to ask you going out the door is how, how good at poker is your son? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know... Listen, when he gets arrested for card counting, when he's <laughs> everyone can blame me. I'll, I, 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 okay. I you know, right. he's good. He, um, he, he's, right. he's actually quite good. Okay. And, and I'm a little, a little bit worried. Uh, and he really enjoys it. He loves any game that has some sort of strategy. He loves. He, he's a, but, um, and, and I love it. And the nice thing is, is that he comes over and now he plays with all my friends. So. <laughs> <laughs> Clean them out. I love it. Juliana, thank you for doing the pod. I really appreciate it. This Thanks was awesome. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. That was a total blast. I, I love stories about people who get their big breaks when they least expect it. And maybe that's, honestly, maybe that's the way to go through life. I, I know that some people put so much pressure on themselves. And it's difficult to have the attitude of you don't care because that's the least attractive, one would say, attitude or personality traits that anybody who wants to hire anybody would have. That story about how she was pissed and that's how she got, you know, on the radar screen of some people at ER that they wanted her to read for another part because of it. And then... She got the opportunity and then got it. And then she was so terrific at it. She 
got the ultimate opportunity, the game-changing, life-changing opportunity, but also the story about her getting her first commercial where, as she put it, she was in a room filled with seven-foot-tall blonde women, you know, Teutonic goddesses, and she thought she'd have no opportunity, no shot, and she got the job because of who she is. That in the same way, I think it was Rob Lowe a couple of weeks ago saying that you have your fingerprint. That's what she he said that that was no, that was Kelsey Grammer last week saying that uh, Nicholas Colasanto, the actor who played coach, told him, this is your fingerprint. This is who you are. Don't let anybody mess with that. And here we have another story kind of telling you the same thing, that you are who you are and belief in yourself that you're personality and your essence is the differentiator. I always tell that to people when they're asking, how do, how do you break into broadcasting? And I said, be yourself, that you're your own walking fingerprint. And that's true. I mean, if you're going to try and put on a, a voice or airs and not be yourself, then you're, you won't succeed in the television sports TV business, that's for sure. I mean, you do hear some guys talking hairdos is the phrase that a lot of people use. Uh, th- those folks don't have staying power. The most successful people I ever met in sports television, Berman, Chris Berman, Stuart Scott, Dan Patrick, Keith Olbermann, Linda Cohn, just five off the top of my head from my sports center days, Michael Irvin, uh, Steve Mariucci, everybody who I work with at NFL Network on the air. They are exactly who they are off the air is the one that you see on the air, Dion. He's exactly the same person when he doesn't have a camera on him as when he does. I, I've always taken that as a life lesson. And then just hearing Juliana Margulies tell the story about how she got her first commercial and how she got ER, and then what her father told her about not taking a job just for the money. I understand that that might not be relatable for a lot of people, certainly in this day and age. It's the same concept of just being true to yourself. And this whole book is about that. And I suggest everybody go get it, certainly since she'll tell some even bigger and greater stories than the ones that she told from her career right here on this edition of Just Getting Started. So do us a favor for all of us here at Just Getting Started. Subscribe if this is your first one. If you know a fan of Juliana Margulies that uh, would like it, suggest it. Subscribe and give us a nice rating. Give us a five-star rating. We always appreciate that. Leave a comment. I'm uh, interested in feedback and what people think and what people would like to hear, a guest you want to hear. Put it up there. I'll check it out. So that's it for this episode of Just Getting Started. We appreciate you taking this one in. We'll see you next time.